Hello and welcome to Fear of a Black Planet, episode 75. Just want to make sure this thing is recording. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about creativity again today. Uh, and developing themes that I've talked about many times before, but as I've said before many times as well. Um, that's what this podcast is about. So I will often be returning to themes. So, uh, <clears throat> so yeah, that's and that's just going to be the way it is. Um, so I'm just there was a, free, a bit of a technical glitch on the last podcast, so I apologise about that. I'm just checking that that's not going to happen again <clears throat> this week. But. Um, Funny thing this week, I've actually, my phone died about a week ago. <coughs> my smartphone, I had one of these old iPhone 5s, my mother's old phone, and the thing eventually just packed in. And it was getting ridiculous. It was in the, one of those situations where you have to, like, manoeuvre it into all sorts of angles in order for it to charge, because the port was so fucked up and filthy and old. Um... So I had, it was a bit weird. I, I have to say I did have withdrawal symptoms from it. But I've noticed that creatively it's actually helped to not have the phone. So I'm in kind of two minds about whether or not to to get a new one, you know. Um, I don't know. I think I, I think I might just go back to Nokia, you know, just a, a normal bog standard phone because the distraction of of the phone i mean you, you it doesn't make your life any better the thing that makes you miserable about social media and having act and distractions and on an iphone that thing's still there the thing that makes you do that you're already miserable before you do it what 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 people feel with social media is just the knowledge that it isn't working, you know, <laughs> that it isn't actually getting rid of that loneliness and that isolation and that anxiety and fear of being alone or whatever it is that worries you, you know, and, and or that shirking from confrontation with yourself for whatever reason it might be, you know, and we all have it, I guess, but um, I've noticed that that didn't go away. I mean, it, having the phone or not having the phone, that was going to be a problem either way, is what I'm saying. And uh, I think I've drunk a lot more. <laughs> As a result, you have to have something. In it. But I, I would honestly say that having a couple of pints a night or half a bottle of wine a night is better than social media or better than having an iPhone. I honestly would say that. Um because it's more honest, it's it's more honest. You recognise it for what it is, and you're more you're more aware of what you're doing. That you're numbing something, or that you're trying to take away the anxiety of just being alive and your own mortality and all that. But one thing I've noticed is I've been <clears throat> much more productive. In quotes, I mean, I've talked a lot on this podcast about the sort of stupidity of the produ productivity obsession of the modern world and I don't mean that in that sense but I've been 
I've had far more satisfying creative moments, let's just put it like that, in terms of getting things finished or um, <clears throat> being able to put things into words, write, write stuff down that's been in my head for a long time or finish a book and things like that. Um, and I don't mean any of this in a sort of pious way, I really don't, because I'm always looking for distractions and I'm incredibly, you know, if I was a kid now, they were, <clears throat> I would have been diagnosed with ADHD or whatever it is they, they call it. So I've always had that problem. And I'm susceptible to it. And the only reason I haven't had it is not because of some triumph of the will. It's because my phone died. So, but I've noticed that it has helped my creativity. It's helped my, it's, <clears throat> well, there have been a number of reasons for that. I've also been off work this week. I took a holiday this week and I was meant to go up north to play in Edinburgh. <clears throat> But the sheer logistics of it, and I'd already been up to Edinburgh a month ago uh, at a wedding and spent a lot of money and stayed in Airbnbs and stuff like that and travelled about, so I'd spent a lot of money. And uh, I didn't really have much left over, so if I was going to do it, I would have to go up on the megabus again, which was excruciating, but this time taking not just my guitar, which was anxiety inducing enough but to take my amp and my, my all my gear basically for busking and uh, so there was just the sheer logistics of that finding a place to stay and then if I you know I got a cousin in Leith but if I stay in Leith then it's you know every day I'll be traveling into the city on the bus with or the tram or whatever it doesn't really make a difference I'll be lugging crap around uh, <clears throat> Just so many things were against it. Um, but the main thing is I hadn't really organised it and it clashed with this wedding. Had I, had I had one or the other, I could have focused my energies. But um, but anyway, the, the upshot is I've actually had quite a good week to myself. So the week that I, my phone died was the week I had off and there was some, you know, there are logistical things about that. But actually I've had more time to just develop, I naturally develop a routine. I mean, this is the thing. It's related to what I'm going to say today, but this get a job kind of mentality. I've always been one of those people who, if I'm left to my own devices, I actually become quite healthy and natural. So in a sense, there's a little bit of a Rousseauian in me still. The, it's the fucking world interfering with my shit that makes things go off kilter. You know, having to go into a job, having to um, perform for other people in a certain way. As Oscar Wilde said, living for others. Um, when you have to do that, it's it's almost impossible to be creative. And, and, and that sounds, even I would say that that sounds self-indulgent. But the thing is, is that the reality of it has proven this week to be the opposite. That it's right, you know, that I, especially if you're an artist, that if, if, you're, if you're left to your own devices, your own insistent, creative voice will do a lot of work for you and I've really enjoyed it this week I've, I've, I've got stuff written I've watched lots of films I've been reading lots of books I've been and, and the main thing is is my routine has settled I mean I, I'd, I'd already been working on that a little bit anyway and I'd been um, you know I, as I said a couple of times before 
myself now compared to myself 18 months ago is far more healthy, both mentally and physically. So that's been a kind of thing long time developing, but just having this week to allow my natural tendency, you know, I, I feel like I'm myself again. And it's not a, a, a statement against anything or anyone, but just, it's just an, aff- it, it's an affirmation to me and a, and a reminder and a warning to myself to, 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 to sort of trust that the, 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 this, that depression and anxiety that comes from having to live out in the world in, in a form that does not suit who you are should be trusted. It's not laziness. It's not self-indulgent. It's not your ego. If it was any of those things, uh, there'd be other consequences to it. And I've just noticed that without all those things that I have been resentful of interfering with my life, it's kind of, it falls into place naturally. I'm, I, I want to exercise. I want to go for walks. I want to have a consistent writing routine every day. I want to get up in the morning. I want to to eat well. There's, there, all these things just become natural, you know. I don't know. Maybe it, it sounds self-indulgent, but it, there's a bliss to it. I have to say, there's a bliss to it. it, and, it, and, it and it's, and it's affir- it's affirming in the sense that I feel... Well, maybe I'm not a complete idiot. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe there's something to this little uh, little voice within. So, yeah, I've actually had a really nice week. I've not done anything spectacular. Um, I'm going. I'm getting out of London today after I finish this podcast. So, I'm looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, I just. I've, I've, I've got more of a consistent um, practice routine and guitar routine and writing routine. So that's been a godsend and just knowing that I have that time to myself. I mean, like yesterday. I mean, one of the things I've noticed that afternoons are a no-go for me in terms of pre-planning things, you know. If, if I'm going to get, if I've got stuff to get done in terms of creative writing and reading, that's going to happen in the morning. I've realised, like uh, that, and and I want to do it. There's, a, there, I mean, I'm absolutely content and happy as Larry between the hours of say six or seven, which is the kind of time I've been waking up, which is a lot better than even a couple of weeks ago. I can tell you, um, as I, I think I was saying last week or the week before, a very inconsistent time. Um, so I'm probably contradiction contradicting in some way what I've said before, but I mean, as I admitted at the time, it's an experiment, and I've been experimenting, so it might go back to waking up at ten thirty in the morning. But this week, I've, I've seemed to have naturally just developed a, a a nice routine where I get stuff done in the morning, between sort of the time I get up and, and midday. And the, but the truth of the matter is, after midday or one o'clock, I don't and like my the sort of productivity goes down anyway, no matter what I'm doing. And that's true if I'm at work or if I'm at home. So, but yesterday was a good example of of just going with the flow. It's not so much that I become less productive necessarily or that I become lazy in the afternoon. It's just that 
that period feels better if I just go with the I sort of go with the flow creative woo woo time, where I don't put any uh, demands on what should get done or what shouldn't get done, and if I do that, I end up I I read a lot more yesterday than I thought I was going to. Um, I went for a long walk. I went up to Shoreditch. Um, I read I read a book, and I felt that. Now, looking back on it, it's a lot more productive. I just sort of said to myself, I'm just going to let it happen, you know, not make any demands on it. And also just sitting in a coffee shop looking at the rain outside without the disturbance of an iPhone. And I, again, I'm not saying I haven't got, I mean, if I had an iPhone now, I would be flicking away at it. The, but the, the sort of old feeling I remember from 20 years ago where you could just daydream, you, you know, it does it does take away your daydreaming. Um, and it does, to some extent, deal with this um, anxious need to be noticed, this anxious need to be loved. And, 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 and those are all legitimate things, I think. I don't think we should sort of write it all off as egotistical. I think it, it just plays into your feeling as, oh, we all need witnesses to our lives, you know. And if you don't have witnesses to your lives, it, it, your life, it can be very lonely in a very acute way. Um, a kind of isolating feeling. You, you need it. Especially if you're an artist, because you're, you're constantly living in uncertainty, living with the unknown. So, so yeah, anyway, that's been... Um, that's been my experience this week. Just the, the, the feeling of, of things naturally veering towards a, a healthy baseline um, <clears throat> and it just shows to me that it just it, it was it's affirming it's, it's 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 an affirming feeling to know that what I'm what I feel like my instincts are telling me I want from life when I'm left to my own devices become a kind of natural thing anyway and that's all I ask actually I mean, I think to me that to me that's a, the, the, at least eighty percent of what I would define as success goes back to that famous Bob Dylan quote, whether he said it or not. But he said, "A successful person is the person that gets up the morning, up in the morning, and does what they want to do." And it's a nice revelation to realize that I don't feel lazy when I don't have obligations to things I don't give a fuck about that actually my energies are preserved and, and, and uh, poised for things that matter to me and I get excited and inspired by things. So, yeah, it's it's been nice to, to remind myself of that. Uh, and that's a combination of, of, of not having to go into to, to work and also not having an iPhone among many other things, I guess. But just the, just having that time to yourself, the, the, the nurturing connection of solitude is, is really valuable. And, I, and I'd forgotten. I haven't, I haven't had a feeling like this for a few, week, few years where I feel free enough and um, relaxed enough to just allow my my natural tendencies to to converge on each other and, 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 and just naturally fall into alignment, which is what I feel has happened a little bit. And, I, and, I, and it's a nice feeling, and it's not about a triumph of will. It's not about an aggressive productivity man. 
it's just a natural you know you start it kind of gives you a bit of faith in yourself you know anyway what kind of wanted to talk about this article that I read this week um, by journalist Helen Dale in The Spectator and when it was actually written when it was actually printed it was from about a month ago in The Spectator it was reprinted somewhere else and I follow her on Twitter because she's very good on free speech um, I'd say she's I'd say she's a sort of centrist classical liberal type she's not particularly conservative I don't think but um, so normally I agree with her and normally I um, think she she's great but this article kind of annoyed me and basically it's saying the the headline is there are too many artists most of them crap and this is again this it's, it's basically along the theme of the kind of oversaturated market the crowded field problem of, of the democratization of art with regard to a kind of cultural tendency to sit to sell the idea of being an artist but also the the the, the lowering of the bar in art, of entry into into most arts but particularly writing you can just start a blog and you can call yourself a writer and there's nothing much anyone else can do about it so i'll i'll read a couple of quotes from this and I don't agree with this, by the way, but this, this is what she's saying. Most people are only ever going to be drones. Telling them because they starred in the high school musical or wrote the best poem in the school magazine means they're going to make it as an actor or a writer is a monstrous lie that sets them up for disappointment. All the arts, but especially literature, have low barriers to entry. Huge numbers of people are attracted to what, they, to what are seen to be glamorous fields like writing, acting, directing and painting. Often, this is because one person is plucked from the crowd and becomes a star. There's nothing quite like a narrative where we get to cheer on the underdog, known in the trade as winner takes all, a winner-takes-all market. However, the economics of crowded fields means that the larger number of participants, the more randomness and luck... Sorry. However, the economics of crowded fields means the larger the number of participants, the more randomness and luck play a role in determining success. You know, a lot of what she's saying is based on, on fact, that, especially that last part, that the, the more saturated the market, the, 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 the less easy it is to determine success. And the less easy it becomes to discriminate between good and bad and value and all that. But uh, it presupposes... It's very reductive in the sense that, I mean, I'm going to, I'll talk more in depth. I've got things notes written on this, but I just want to say something about that quote. That the it presupposes that the reason why someone would be attracted to something is just by being enticed through the sort of egotistical infatuation of the glamour of it. And maybe there are a lot of people. Maybe she's right. Maybe that is a large part of what's saturating the markets, that people are propagandized into accepting the, 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 that seductive feeling of maybe I could be that glamorous too uh, is real, when in fact it, it, it's by no means um, guaranteed, certainly, and, and by no means a, a sort of a sustainable and legitimate way to live your life. Having said that... 
I mean, my own from just purely talking from my own personal experience, and I reckon that this is probably true, more true than she's allowing here. That the thing that attracts people to being an artist is very much something they resist within themselves anyway. That there's a you know, I saw Jim Morrison when I was fourteen, fifteen, and I and I thought, fuck, that's exactly. Um. And that attraction was not based on some pie-in-the-sky careerist marketing. It was based on a, a recognition of something in myself. You know, that that's what our heroes do. They make, they make us recognize something about ourselves that we always thought, we always intuited, and they give us the permission to pursue that truth within ourselves, right? And she's just brushing over all of that here and just saying that the, all that's going on is that these young people are sold a bill of goods and that because they're massive egotists and want to feel special, like special snowflakes, that's why they go into it. But I would argue that that's, you know, if you wanted to feel like a special snowflake, what the best thing to do would be to, 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 to not be a rock star, to not be a writer, but to go and become a lawyer. You know, because however difficult the barriers are entry, and she does talk about that elsewhere in the piece, how it, it being a, all other professions like being a lawyer have higher bars, but why don't we have that for artists? Well, as high as the bar is, it's very pragmatic if you want to achieve something. So all the, you know, you're not, you cannot be, you could say, well, it's an excuse for, that's what Auden said, isn't it? People will become writers because they're not talented at anything else. I mean, these are just kind of cynical, sort of resentful things to say, dressed up as smart things. You know, it comes off very smart and, and, and self-aware, but it isn't really. It's it, I'll say some more about that at the end of the podcast, but it's a, it's a kind of resentment about creativity. Anyway, here's another quote. This comes from near the end. There's nothing quite like seeing a modestly talented person crumple when they think an opportunity has been snatched from them, when they have to go and... There is nothing quite like seeing a modestly talented person crumble when they think an opportunity has been snatched from them, when they have to go and drive for Uber or take a factory job. Even worse is the modestly, modestly talented person who persists, brackets, and persists, and is paid nothing at all while churning out content for the Huffington Post. So... I mean, there's a kind of bitterness in it. But I think that the kind of thing that makes someone bitter is exactly what they're accusing everyone else of. A kind of egotism. A desire to be special. And I think a lot of the people who rage against the democratization of the arts are really just coming at it from an egotistical way, no matter how many how they dress it up, and I think it's sort of pathetic, and, um, you know, it's always been hard, There's always it's always been oversaturated and oversubscribed, being an artist, um, there have always been more, more modestly talented people than there have been extremely talented people, that's always been the case, always been the case, and it's always been the case that you don't know where you fit on the spectrum, and the job of an artist is to kind of get over it, and to just buckle down and uh, you know and 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 take a gamble, 
But if you constantly, we, I think that this a lot of this cynicism comes from a very utilitarian, the, the dominant utilitarian way of looking at the world, which is very anti-risk. You know, if you can't guarantee a certain result, why would you bother? But the but the whole point of being a creative person and an artistic person is that you're rolling the dice on yourself and on circumstance and on inspiration, and it wouldn't be. That, that, to me, that's actually where the value comes from. The value is in this might be a complete load of shit and I don't know and it's not my job to know. My job is to take the risk. And if you can't accept that aspect of it, that you don't know the difference between what's good and what's bad or that you might not know if you're shit or not, that is your bullshit. That's your ego and that is actually the real snowflake mentality going on. That's my view on this. <sighs> That said, that said, there are legitimate issues here. I mean, like, what does she say? I do think that there's some something in this. There is a kind of uh, marketing scam going on, particularly with kind of masters and creative writing type things, and uh, the kind of playing into the snowflake mentality in schools in order to make feel people feel better about themselves and kind of uh, she says that uh, nobody gets prizes culture and things like that i mean she's got some legitimate points to make on that i don't it's not that i'm not i don't recognize and i've talked about it that this kind of democratization can lead to sort of silly behavior and and uh, and it can have more more downsides than we care to admit to ourselves but and the answer is not just to <clears throat> to kind of go into a reactionary thing where you you go, you you sort of envision a kind of Victorian utopia where the the good the good rise to the top and everyone else becomes just a factory drone. First of all, that's something I really object to because why would that be ideal in any way? Why would it be ideal, even for modestly talented people, to just revert to being a drone? Why, why would that be in any way the norm? Anyway, that's, you know. So I laid out some, some, I think there are problems on both sides. There's problems with too much exclusivity in art, which, we, we're kinda, which, which a lot of this kind of fluffy culture around creativity has emerged from as a reaction to, quite rightly. But there's also problems with the democratization of art. The problems with the exclusivity in art is that it creates a, a, a corrupt elite. It becomes much more about who you know rather than what you know or what you're capable of. And we all know what that's like. And we all know what it's like to be rejected on, the, on illegitimate grounds from being accepted uh, according to our inborn uh, strengths. You know, so... That's always going to be, that's not something she's talked about in this article, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, that's always something that was legitimately reacted against. I mean, I come at it from the beats, so in a way that the, the, the beats of the 1950s were, or in the late 40s, were explicitly reacting to that, the kind of academicization of art and the, the sort of um, New York literary elites 
uh, and I feel that we're in a t actually ironically I actually think that as much as we've got all this democratization in terms of the printing world and in terms of the massive corporations it's become more elitist and more moribund and, and, and stagnated so there's always going to be it's going to create that elite and it, and it's not so much that having elitist values is wrong is that but when you have a physical kind of elite of few people at the top it necessarily means exclusion of the vast majority and necessarily means that what's rewarded is not always who's best because an elite always wants to preserve itself and also your definitions of what are valued becomes too rigid if you if you've got a self-protecting elite you don't ever adapt and the whole point of great art and great civilization and great culture is it's it, it's the body of ideas and the body of artists work or artists themselves who have been the most adaptive most forward-thinking most um, innovative and by and by being all of that have created an adaptivity and um, health in the culture and uh, I mean I, I, on, I, I would say that part of the success of, 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 of Western Anglo-American democracy and liberty has been down to its her to, to the extent to which it can draw from the great the great moments like the Renaissance you know um, I, for some reason that's a controversial thing to say because it's 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 conflated with some kind of affirmation of empire no I would say that one of the things that's so interesting about Western Anglo-American uh, tradition of liberty is that it, so much of itself has survived its colonialism so I just think that puts a lie on post-colonial critiques because so much of what you know like <clears throat> you can you can even it's so so much of it survived fascism even you know like the, we still go to Rome. We all the things that the fascists use to, to sort of self-congratulate themselves have survived the fascists. We still see certain things as valuable, uh, despite who's tried to uh, ride on the coattails of it. You know, so I think that that's something interesting, and I think that that that's a big part of the the value. And 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 yes, we need a kind of hierarchy of exclusivity. In order to, to, to truly value that, we have to be able to say that certain kinds of modern art are bullshit compared to Michelangelo's David. Yes, we have to be able to say that. But at the same time, if you go too far along the line of, of the hierarchy, you become rigid and unadaptive, and that's the very thing, that's the very value that that art creates. So it's paradoxical in that sense. And also, the, the, the other problem with... with this kind of hierarchy, sort of hierarch, too rigid hierarchical exclusion. Because I'm not against hierarchy. I do, th I do recognise the critique that in order to say something's beautiful, we have to say something's not beautiful. You know, and we have to, in order to say someone's talented, we have to be able to say someone's not talented. So it, it it's a difficult one. But another problem with this, and it, it's related to what I've already said about Helen Dale's article, is that the minute you are so rigid about the definitions of your value and, and the hierarchy upon which uh, artworks are judged, 
it necessarily means that lack of creativity becomes the norm. And I think that that's, that's the danger. And I actually think that's one of the good things that's come out of the counterculture. And, and, and also the internet and the democratisation of our... And I'm going to come to the problems with it in a second. But one of the good things that's come out of it is a recognition, as I've said before, that we are all creative. And I know that people like Helen Dale don't like this. And I know that some people don't. But what I'm not saying is that everybody's an artist. And I, I think that we need to get that distinction again and again. I'm going to keep hammering that because it's, it's so important if we get to the stage where we're so hierarchical about our, our values of beauty and art and talent and genius, then it does come to the... Ex it, it, you do end up saying what she explicitly says in this article, most people can only ever be drones. Now, that is not the recipe for a healthy, sustainable culture that's going to survive. Um, that is a recipe for, for reactionary uh, stagnation. And... That's aside from all the, the the sort of inhumanity of that statement, and I know there's an element of irony, and, and you know I'm not accusing her of being a fascist or something like that. I'm just saying that uh, even in jest and even in in hyperbole, there's something completely lacking in in a, in a, in a in a forward thinking or exuberant idea of what human human beings are capable of and I think that we have to one of the great things that we can recognize for, in a world where democratization of art and creativity has taken place is that we all have some capacity for it and that we all have an imagination and that so much of what we value in life and society and citizenship and human rights and empathy and love and relationships comes from the imagination. This is something that the Romantics talked about. Shelley talked about it explicitly. And they were campaigning for a democratization of art on that basis. It wasn't that we must democratize artists. They would have very much kept the idea of a, of a, of a singular great artist standing um, on the mountain overlooking his age. You know, like... And I want to preserve that too. So there's a paradox in what I'm saying. I definitely recognise that. But I don't think it's an inconsistency so much as a paradox. You know, I think that um, the reason why great singular individuals are valued is because they appeal and remind us all, regardless of our capacity, that we all have an imagination and that we all depend on it and that actually so much of what makes life valuable is dependent upon our own ability to, to take control of our imagination, to not be controlled. So much of democracy and freedom and uh, a healthy culture, a surviving, sustainable culture, depends upon individuals' relationship with their, with their imagination. <clears throat> and to the extent to which, you know, the democratization of creativity and the democratization of resources for people to, to practice creative pursuits and to and to become even just modest artists, jobbing artists, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. That's a huge achievement. And I th I think that we can scorn it at our peril because I think that it's one of those hidden benefits that we're not quite seeing is that actually it has fulfilled the romantic ideal of allowing each man to live for himself. Uh, and I think a, a large part of that has created 
the, the great feats of feminism and civil rights, much more than political emancipation has. That comes later. But I think that we are living on the benefits of the, the final democratization of the imagination. I mean, the, 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 that's not a political thing. The imagination is democratic. That, that is such a huge intuition of the Romantic Age. Um, so, there you go. Uh, but at the same time, I recognise that um, you, you need some kind of hierarchy of value. And I just don't think it's that inconsistent to say that we can have we can all, we all have an imagination we all have a creative capacity but some people are great artists and they stand on the mountain and they shout from a great height with a bellowing wonderful beautiful voice and remind us all of our creative imaginative powers we can not all be those people on the mountain right but we but but those but we but and we and we need to to be able to discriminate between false prophets and true artists, by all means, I get it. Um, but but the, but but going the opposite way and just saying, you know, most of us are going to be drones is 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 Jesus Christ. That's a recipe for for tyranny, and and it's not just reactionary. It's it's like an active pursuit of the ancien regime. That's like going back to serfdom, you know. And even if you say it in jest and hyperbole. You, you, you're basically saying that my, my bruised ego as an individual artist is so resentful of this of the feelings of being oversaturated and, and being just one fart in the wind that I want that I'm quite happy to just toss up all the benefits and I get it I get it there are huge problems I feel as an individual artist with the democratization of art and it's it's but but the the, the right answer is to see it as a paradox not as an invitation to reactionary kind of ideas. So I took some notes on the, also on the, on, the, on, the, on the problems with democratized art. And the, the first one being that we lose that hierarchy. So we, be, we lose the ability uh, to see what's, what's truly beautiful art. And, and, and once we lose, and, but compared to just mediocre or something which should not bother us. We need that discriminatory power because that's where art gets its value from in being in its uniqueness. So you need some kind of hierarchy of value to, there. But you also need that, that hierarchy of value because that is kind of what beauty does and art does. It, it, it triggers our imagination precisely because it triggers a kind of hierarchy of value within us that we we see that something higher to aim towards we we i very much believe in that relationship between beauty and the good and and, and i don't think it for all the philosophical problems you could argue about on that relationship i, I think it's very difficult to deny that when we experience something beautiful we experience value and and we experience value to the exclusion of things we that are not valuable. We realize some certain type of um, at least esoteric value system in the experience of something beautiful. The other problem is is that the market gets flooded, as Helen Dale says, and so the market itself becomes unsustainable. And that is actually 
a paradox because the more people we you could say we want democratization because we want everybody to to benefit from from accessing their own creativity and ex self expression and blah 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 blah. But actually, a, a hugely overcrowded market, a flooded market, can't support art. So actually, in the end of the day, the long-term consequences of it, and I think that we are dealing with this, and I think it is a valuable critique from Helendale, because I've been dealing with this, and any artist who's tried to make their life on this ends up with that problem, is uh, <clears throat> the, the, the marketplace can't sustain you, so it actually... The, the democratization and accessibility of being able to call yourself an artist means that it's less likely that if you are an artist, you're going to be able to sustain your life on it. So it kills art in a way. So it sort of, it has the unintended consequence there. And that is a serious problem. And anyone who's gone more than a couple of years trying to make their living on this stuff is, is going to find out whether they're talented or not. Another thing is you become jaded and cynical. Not just about the overcrowded thing, but because you, you be, everything becomes familiar. You be, you become so uh, bored with everything. Everything becomes you're unimpressed. There's no there's nothing that's going to impress you anymore. And I and I think that that again takes away from the experience of of of, of that hierarchic phenomenon of beauty. The once once everything becomes familiar. Then you then you lose the very capacity for beauty itself. So therefore, your the democratization actually assaults your imagination because your imagination depends on your ability to experience beauty. And without the imagination, so much of human life becomes intolerable. I mean, we are living, you know, all these people like Helendale who write these articles that we are living in an age where we take for granted our imaginative abilities, capacities, and freedoms, but it is by no means a given. And uh, so much of, of a humane, sustainable, peaceful, uh, moral existence emanates from the imagination. So when you have an over... The paradox of allowing everybody to, to indulge that imagination is that therefore nothing becomes of any value and therefore everything is just, you know, every, all the good things have been said. There's nothing left to, to, to do or learn or to experience. There's no wow anymore. So the imagination itself becomes uh, kind of moribund and, and insipid and, and uh, obviously that's, that, that's a really dangerous place to be. Because the imagination is so... It's not just important for basic one-on-one -on -one morality and the notion of human rights, say, or, or uh, just human empathy that leads to a good society. It's bad for politics more generally in terms of... In, you need imagination to know the difference between false prophets and, and, and demagogues and, and the real thing. And so much of... This is why the point about individuality that all the uh, socialists and extreme lefties don't get. Well, you're always going to be the individual. It's so selfish, man. It's like no, because on the le it's only on the level of the individual, as in the imagination of the individual conscience, that we can establish the difference between dangerous ideology and healthy ideals. Those all these things are so dependent on the imagination. Uh, the creative ability for people to make their own connections themselves. Uh, otherwise, we end up in collective 
we end up as collective automaton, and that's just ideal fodder, isn't it, for people like Hitler and Stalin. And uh, so there's a danger in that. But the, the fact that the democratization of access to that can then create the unintended consequence of devaluing it and, 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 and also making it kind of flaccid uh, is a problem. And I do think that that's a serious problem. I don't have the answer to it. Also, <clears throat> I think there was an article recently, and I, I haven't read it. I just saw the headline, but it, it confirmed a suspicion of mine. I'll just look it up. The, um, yeah, here's in The Guardian. A new book shows how the Republic, China's Republic government has adapted to the challenge of a networked age. Let me just read this. Sorry, I'm just reading this. Flooding, yeah, so censorship 2.0, they're calling it. So basically the Chinese governments and governments like it are starting to realise that they cannot rein in the net, right? So they've got this thing called censorship 2.0. Censorship 2.0 is based on the idea that there are three ways of achieving the government's desire to keep information from the public. Fear, friction and flooding. Fear is the traditional analogue approach. It works, but it's expensive, intrusive, risks triggering backlash, or the Streisand effect, which is the idea that once you pay, once you, you say, don't look at this, everybody wants to look at it. When an attempt to hide a piece of information winds up drawing public attention, blah, 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 yeah. The friction model imposes, involves imposing a virtual tax in, for, in terms of time, effort, and money on those trying to access censored information. If you're dedicated or cussed enough, you can find the information eventually, but most citizens won't have the patience, ingenuity, or stamina to preserve the search. Friction, friction is cheap and unobtrusive and, an, and, and enables plausible denial. Flooding, in, and this is the one I'm talking about, flooding involves deluging the citizen with a torrent of information, some accurate, some phony, some biased, with the aim of making people overwhelmed. In a digital world, flooding is child's play. It's cheap, effective, and won't generate a backlash. So there you go. That's, I mean, that, that is, that, by the way, confirms something I've had since the, the, the sort of birth of, of the, the World Wide Web, a, a, a reservation. The, and we... And so that, that is absolutely a product of this democratization of creativity. And I think sometimes I have this cynical suspicion that the reason why big companies have allowed accessibility through Macs to creating, to, to technology that would have otherwise meant, you know, paying your dues to, to people like Sony and, and working up the ladder is that if you democratize art, you neutralize it in a way because you take away that value. And if you if you are in any way threatened by individual imaginative conscience, like I've been saying, or 
or you want to control and preserve your space as the top of the artistic elite, then perhaps democratization is ironically exactly what you want as long as it's controlled and managed a la China. So the fact that China are doing this, the fact that that's actually now a thing, flooding the market on purpose, the flooding the information market in order to keep people so dazzled and bewildered, which is the age we're living in and we're all living that reality. So we cannot deny that that's not the fact right now. And a large part of that, the, the motivation, I think, behind this article by Hoyland Dale that I'm commenting on is that frustration of feeling flooded. And so, the, so it, it paradoxically, the, the greater access to beauty and the imagination has created this denigration of it and, and um, not just overwhelmed lack of being able to discriminate according to a hierarchy of beauty, but also just that the actual imaginative muscle itself becomes, becomes weakened and... Um, <laughs> What's the word? Yeah, weakened, I guess, flaccid, uh, become you, you becomes um, neutralized, and God knows if that you know that is a a, a problem. And, and with the issue of censorship, it's a great way of controlling art. The best way to quell a rebellion is to give them what they want. A teacher of mine told me that once. And it's true, to make them realise that the, the thing that they were rebelling against was a kind of fiction. So, not to say all art is rebellion, but if you, if you in any way are threatened by, and it is a threatening thing, giving people that the, there would be enough people, I think it's like a fine balance, isn't it? They realise that there's a kind of happy medium of effective dissenting individuality. In the in 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 the society, but if you if you you can either choose to try and restrict it, which always has a backlash, and you always end up having to fight fire with fire, and it's hugely expensive. It's very Huxley in this, isn't it? I mean, that is actually exactly what Huxley said: is that people will will their own slavery, that you create slavery through democracy in a way uh, by by oversaturating. So instead of restricting it, you you sort of overindulge the access to the point where anyone that's actually going to be a threat, anyone that's going, any kind of tall poppies are going to be, they cannot, they, neither can they discriminate themselves nor can they be discriminated from on, by an audience. Who's the, who's to listen to, who, you know, so that, and that's the world we live in. So it's, it's a fucking, it's a scary place. And, you know, I get it. The, you could say that the very podcast I'm recording now is a product of that and a result of that. And you might be right. So there you go. Uh, I just want to finish with a, a quote from Nietzsche. <clears throat> I'll just say this, that, that, that I do think that a lot of these articles, that while they have good points, as I've just been saying, <laughs> you know, I think I've got put more good points on, on defense of Helendale than I have against her, but... Um, that said, I think a lot of these kind of articles and that kind of tone of sort of urbane critique is a very anti-creative. As, as much as it's pretending to defend values in creative hierarchies, it's actually very anti-creative. Because 
it's a form of perfectionism. It's it's the knife of perfectionism again. It's sort of saying that unless it's this, it's not worth doing. But even Picasso knew that that's bullshit. Like, for every great piece of art, you have to saturate your canvas. You know, you, you have, you know, you look at any artist's studio. A great example of this is photography. I was reading a photography book and, and one of the, and I, I kind of am getting into it a little bit. And they said one of the secrets of, the secret that every great photographer knows is that very few of their pictures are actually great. That they take so many shit ones before they get to good ones, right? So if you are demanding that every piece of, every photograph is going to be spectacularly great, you're never going to make a good photograph because it, it, it sort of defies the protest. And it's absolutely it's the same with writing, no matter what anyone tells you. What Hemingway said was right, that 80% of what he wrote was bullshit. Or no, I think he even said it was like, for every 80 pages I write that's horseshit, there's one that's good. So <clears throat> that's, you know, and I think that, that that is a law of nature, of creativity. So it... I'm not saying there are not good points to be made here. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have standards or blah, blah, blah. But I am saying that it's a lot more complex than the way it gets painted. And the way in the, the reductive simplicity of a lot of this kind of contempt for, for, for the democratization of art is really just a manifestation of personal resentment and, and fear of creativity, fear of beauty. It's a, it's a sort of puritanical rage, um, which is... That's been around since fucking God knows when, right? Um, and I would also say, actually, that <clears throat> ironically, not not ironically, actually, it makes perfect sense. But uh, the the maybe it is ironic the 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 with the rise of democratization and the sort of uh, oversaturation of of creativity. Has also meant that there is farm that the the market for contempt of art, like these articles, the market for a sneering, sarcastic contempt, has also been democratized. Everybody gets to feel like they're above it. Everybody gets to feel like they're above art, and and God oh, is so self-indulgent. Blah blah blah. I mean, I notice this when I'm busking. There are far more sort of sneering, smirking reactions than there are good ones. And that could be my due. That could be right. It could be what I deserve, right? But the, it shows that I think anyone who isn't moved by my art would just move on. Most, most I think, than the people who do. But the, but there's been a great, the great need and compulsion on a lot of people, and I've noticed it increase in the last few years to sort of make sure that I know that they don't think I'm worth shit. So that that. So there is an irony there that the, the sort of superior attitude has also been democratized. And I think to me that's much more of a problem. And that 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 yeah captures a lot of the themes of what my all the podcasts have done. The um that superior sneering tone is itself a a, a kind of product of democracy. And, and also a product of a snowflake mentality because that person isn't feeling special enough. So they resent anyone else putting themselves out there and making themselves special. They can't stand it. They cannot stand it. It's a hatred of art. And very often those people who really hate art will masquerade as the lovers and the guardians of art. They will masquerade as the very ones who are the guardians 
of creativity in the art. They will appoint themselves that role. Anyway, I'm going to leave with a quote from Nietzsche. Um, <clears throat> Do not talk about giftedness, inborn talents. One can name great men of all kinds who were very little gifted. They acquired greatness, became geniuses, as we put it, through qualities the lack of which no one who knew what they were would boast of. They all possessed that seriousness of the efficient workman, which first learns to construct the parts properly before it ventures to fashion a great whole. They allowed themselves time for it, because they took more pleasure in, them, in making the little secondary things well than in the effect of a dazzling whole. Yes, so I think that... Um, There's a kind of smug, perfectionist demand, a fashionista's demand for, for a certain dazzling wow right off the bat. And what he's saying is that actually the great artists are the ones who are, who are willing to, 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 to forgo even thinking about that. And that's absolutely true. I think I was talking about the Sistine Chapel a couple of weeks ago, and that was exactly the point I was making, is that the only way anyone could ever have done that who is human <laughs> would be to forget even the possibility of the end product, to just use it as an excuse to, to indulge the beauty of the line, the, the beauty of being absorbed in the, in the meticulous day-to-day uh, rewards of being a, being a, being a craftsman, and that that's absolutely true. So, in a way, that quote covers it for me because it's it's it, anyone who is dazzled into the glamour of being a writer. Yes, even if the modestly talented ones, they are going to. That's not a sustainable way of doing it and even if they persist and persist and persist and they flood the market with these types of people that's that should mean nothing compared to the real artist the real artist just finds too much pleasure in the doing of the work to be thinking about success or glamour and i'm not saying i haven't been i have been completely taken up by all that shit but what's left is just the love of doing it as i was saying that the success of just having a fucking routine it's great that's my life it's a self-determined life that's a fulfilling form of solitude in the absorption of something which makes life worth living. There's nothing better than that. And that's what it comes down to, really. So a lot of this harping and carping, it, to me, is really just a fashionista's obsession with success. That's really what we're talking about here. It's more difficult now to, to shine like a, a bright gold star, perhaps. And maybe that's actually a good thing. I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks again for listening. That was episode 75. I will be back for episode 76 next week. Have a good bank holiday.